Welcome to Make That Paper, the show where we talk about all the crazy jobs we do to make the cash we need to pursue our artistic dreams. And to stay in an Airbnb when the contractors run a little behind schedule. Oof. Today we are talking about that teaching trade and the editing enterprise and also the old writing retreat role. Yes, and we're getting into the insurance company concern while also dabbling in the music metier. Oh yeah. We are your hosts, Jamie Parker Stickle. And Jason Bieber. And in this episode, we are talking to a literary power couple. She is the author of the most talked about memoir of the year, Blow Your House Down, and has published four novels, including Life and Men, which is now under development as a series on Netflix. He wrote the breakout memoir, Liar, as well as several hit novels, including the cost of living. And we are so lucky to have them join us on today's show. Please welcome the brilliant Gina Frangello. And the equally brilliant, though not quite as cited, Rob Roberge. <laughs> Yay! Bravo. Thank you so much for joining us, you guys. Welcome. Thank you. Thank, Thank you. you for having us. <laughs> I'm glad we made them laugh. Yes, <laughs> that's, that's it. That's, that's, that's our lubricant for the show. Yeah. <laughs> Done. <laughs> we have like other you had us you had us at the airbnb <laughs> <laughs> well, you might enjoy that, that i know that was rough for you guys yeah oh, oh my god this isn't contractor hour oh with rob and gina yeah, this is, we don't get to perform our our like our impromptu songs about our contractor <laughs> um, we have time for it we we'll, to- we'll make time for that yeah, we we can we can add on to it. We can pile on because our new place in uh, a little north of LA, um, Northern California, is like our contractors just left, and so the job is done. And we went up there, and there was there was like blood on the sheets and the floor and the dryer and washing the washing machine was filled with like fifty gallons of water when we opened it. It just oh flooded the house, and we were like you guys what's done and there's like no molding on the ceiling anymore i'm we're like, still at the blood oh there's the blood floor. all over the sheets i was like <laughs> jamie's really good at leading with the climax yeah who murdered who in <laughs> yeah, this room it's a little matter of your house now being a crime scene it was okay <laughs> well that's freaky we, you know when we got into the airbnb game we knew that was going to be part and parcel for it <laughs> Yeah, it's a cautionary tale for us. We've dealt with blood a lot. Yeah, yeah. P.S. You know, we bought just we just bought that little container house, which is adorable. Oh, thank you. We're so plumbing. That's awesome that it has plumbing. It's it's what that you have. It's got a toilet and a shower and I I mean, it's got everything. We're so excited about it. So we're probably going to be joining the Airbnb game and, and soon there shall be blood in our house, too. Yep, so, just get them made. Well, just- <laughs> someone else's. Yeah. Exactly. What what is it? What do you mean a container like a like a cargo shipping it's container? Yeah, container. that's yeah. converted. Oh yeah, yeah. wow. I didn't show you the pictures of it. And it comes no, you you're not on Facebook. No, no, I'm living the life. Um, but yeah, you, wow. you so they just like they they showed up one day with a truck and just dropped off your house. Well, after the day of grading 20 feet and making it level and putting a foundation down and then getting oh, yelled right. at by the guy putting the thing down that you didn't put the foundation down, right? right. City boy. And, mm-hmm. and you know, then Rob's like, they might not be able to drop it down. And, you know, but, but they did. I, I didn't sound quite as hysterically uh, <laughs> childlike. Well, when somebody calls me city boy, I definitely go into childhood hysterics. 
Yeah. Speaking of uh, them getting into the Airbnb business as artists, which is a wonderful artist transition and uh, passive income, passive. <laughs> Not hey, that's, what, that's what the IRS calls it. Right. Passive income. <laughs> Let's talk about you guys starting out because in, I'm going to start with Gina just really quick because I just, you know, it's still talk about blow your house down as everyone is still talking about it. I think we're all probably going to read it two or three times, but Aww, you talk you. about a lot of jobs that you did. And I think that it's incredible though, your steadfastness and, and wanting to be a published writer the whole time because a lot of the jobs you did weren't equal to being a writer. True, true. Yeah. <laughs> so let's, let's go back because you always did want to be a writer. Yeah, I've been writing since I was four years old. Um, I started writing my first novel when I was 10 and like ripped off butcher block wow. paper um, mm -hmm. that my mom used to buy because I went through too much paper and we were super poor. Um, yeah, so I've always, always written, but I didn't major it in, psych uh, in college. I majored in psychology because we were below the poverty line and my parents were not going to have any security and I was going to have a bunch of loans to pay back. And so I was like, what am I supposed to do with this writing degree? The only writer I had ever met was the guy who lived in our garage when I was growing up. Um, who, Amazing. <laughs> I guess that kind of says it all. That right? was an Airbnb early on <laughs> edition. <laughs> so yeah, yeah, he had never published anything. Actually, wow. there was another one who was a PI who went to a bar my dad used to own. Um, and he was writing a series of novels about the Russians taking over the United States by infiltrating all the McDonald's. Um, but he never got published either. So those were my two models of like how much money I was going to have if I McDonald's it, social media. But I'm not going to lie to you. Like I sort of want to get into this conspiracy theory now. Listen, <laughs> I have had side hustles too. And people will be like, what do you do? And I'm like, I'm a writer and an actor. And they're like, oh, let me give you my, my book. You should read my right? book. And I'm like, okay, but I'm not published or anything. Let me give you my book. And it's like a box of notebooks of conspiracy theory. And I'm like, where does it start and where does it end? And what That's I the beauty. <laughs> the great thing about this guy is he's actually turned into like one of my biggest examples in my like in my teaching because the reason he didn't get published, even though his idea was sort of killer, was that yeah. he'd be like, you know, Logan opened the car door by using his right thumb to depress the door <laughs> handle, hooking the rest of his fingers underneath the lever and pulling forward with his right foot. He stepped into the car and you'd be like, oh my motherfucking God. You know, so like that's, I tell my students, like everyone tells you to use your senses and use physical detail, but like there is such a thing as overdoing it. Mm -hmm. so. Right. I was at oh that exit, and then the car exploded. What was the essential information we just gave the reader? We took a little while getting to the bottom. You know. It's so interesting because I never thought that I would appreciate brevity more than when I read something that's overwritten. Like when somebody is like, oh, it's an 1100 page book. And I'm like, wow, I don't have the time. I'm like not even going to start reading that. I'm sorry. Like, well, it's, honestly. It's like we appreciate mortality more when a Merchant Ivory film is on. <laughs> <laughs> we feel it. 
We feel it coming toward us in a way it normally isn't. <laughs> I right, right. Some kind of like a bet pool going before all things to see whether Rob can get like a dig at Merchant Ivory into the conversation. Or something anti-Anglophile <laughs> at some point. I'm really just glad that you're here now, Rob. Just for that line alone. Just for mm -hmm. that. I can go. <laughs> just for that. I am so like, that's yeah. yeah, you may have, you may have just made the uh, the the commercial cut for the episode. Uh -huh. so there you go. Yeah, that's awesome. <laughs> I'm so happy. Um, okay, so you so psychology, and I know that um, when you were on the East Coast, you were actually practicing in a social worker position or in a role. Yeah, I um I I worked at what was then called a battered women's agency, which was an internship um, while I was getting my master's in counseling psychology. I um I saw private clients. I ran the domestic violence group on Monday evenings at which we often got bomb threats and like calls that would say things like, I know what that bitch's car looks like and I'm gonna kill her, you know, and so that uh, I also would take women for restraining orders and, and you know, to sort of get their like their wick things. And, and mm -hmm. um, so it was sort of a full service thing. And then I also the next year I helped open a women's wellness center at a, uh, a hospital in a prison town. And then for the next uh, two years, I or maybe like a year and a half, I was also a private contractor at a foster care agency where I worked with um primarily adolescent, like teen foster girls, which was amazing, amazing work, very harrowing. And, um, you know, and I was doing all this work basically between the ages of 22 and 25. So 23 and 25, something like that. And so I had really not, um, I had not processed a lot of the, the violence in my own neighborhood of origin. And, and I, I left pretty, ready for a break and I went to go get my master's in um, English and in the program for writers at UIC and thought I would just go back to being a therapist but I ended up getting so caught up in the literary world that I never went back. Well, that's that's interesting because you you said that even from age four and in age 10 you were writing your first novel so you already had the the goal of being a writer in your crosshairs um, yeah. but then this this we'll call it a side job, but this job this this work that you were doing in um, in working in the and you said what was then called a battered women's shelter. And I'm not sure what the right term is now, but um, in in these domestic so violence housing usually yeah yeah, yeah. The, DV DV housing more common now, but yeah yeah. But these these you uh, I'll I'll use the the blanket term of this humanitarian work that you were doing was so important to you i i think that you're oh, that yeah. it, it actually almost changed the course of your career yeah absolutely well first of all so it's really interesting like um you know i hear a lot from my students of course because i teach at university and and mfa level like the goal of being a writer like i i didn't write with any concept that i was ever going to be published i had no actual aspirations of being published i wrote because it was how i thought it was how i processed the world it was just a thing i did um i hid my writing from everyone in my neighborhood it was something that would have been kind of laughed at only my mother knew that i did it i didn't confess to anyone that i had been writing novels until i started college um so 
So it was interesting. I finally started to think maybe I'll publish something someday when I was taking elective creative writing classes in college and my professors, I studied with Lori Moore, I studied with Ann Packer and people said, you know, you should send your stories out. And I finally did um, right when I had gotten out of college, send one story out and it got published. And that was really the beginning. I was in my twenties before I ever thought like, oh, be a writer. Writing was just like, it was, it was what I was, but I didn't think of it as a career at all, yeah. at all, um, and had no goals of that type. So, um, but yeah, I mean, I, I definitely, I wanted to be in the helping professions and that has continued in my life in the literary world. I mean, I've worked in, you know, in nonprofits as an editor for as long as I've been in the literary world. So, I mean, I went back to get my master's and within a year I was working at a literary magazine that I eventually took over and launched a press out of. I was working then, um, you know, running the fiction section of The Nervous Breakdown. I was the Sunday editor of, of The Rumpus. I, of course, was at the Coachella Review with you. And now I work at um, the Los Angeles Review of Books as the creative nonfiction editor. So I've always had, um, a you know literary citizenship component to my to my literary identity like where i'm able to champion and publish other writers and i i briefly like the time that i was doing the coachella review where i was just faculty editor so i wasn't making those actual like really in the trenches decisions i was just kind of supervising um was the most distance i've ever been from it because i i was in the throes of really like trying to find my footing with full-time work again. Yeah. Um, and I missed it so badly. Do we have any uh, commercials today? Let's take a quick break and see. And we're back. It's a whole other side topic that, um, you know, that these jobs do not pay. And I was just going to say, let's, let's talk about why you cobbled together so many pieces, no. because some of them didn't pay. No, you no, know, no. Which, Right. I mean, like I'm, I'm, and I'm an editor on a lit blog and I'm like, <laughs> yeah. do you guys know I'm volunteering my time? So like, I actually have to work a real job and edit my novel for my agent. Like I right. love doing it though. Like you love supporting other writers and reading Just, the work and yes. putting it out there feels good, but it doesn't pay. It's, I mean, the, you know, Coachella review came with a stipend of a, you know, a which very was pennies stipend. Yeah. And that was literally the most I ever made at any of these jobs that I've been doing since 1995 um, or 96. And, you know, so it, it it's a complex situation. Like now I am doing it in addition to more than full-time other work. Um, but most of the people who do this work are, are, you know, people who can somehow afford to do this work. And so that is a problem in the industry, not just because we don't get paid, which is itself a problem, but also because people who really like don't have an hour to spare, like are really not able to get by if they're donating their time to being kind of like a literary arbiter of some kind, you know, or, or a, a philanthropist in the literary world, like they, you know, it essentially means you're only drawing from people who have some other form of stable employment, some other form of spousal support or family right. money. And that right. is, is um, 
a ripple effect problem in the entire literary world. I Which think. is also why I think that um, people come to it later in life, not because they didn't always want to do it, but it's like mm -hmm. when you read that somebody isn't published for the first time till they're 45 or 50 or whatever, it's because we had to work jobs and yeah. we didn't have the time to just be a full-time writer fully true yeah which is why i want to talk to rob because he had a similar track to you in terms of timing like you went to mfa also and you went in your when did you say did, did i read in your bio that you went in your 20s for your mfa as well uh or did very, you come later in my in my late 20s but but prior to like 18 our our experiences are pretty radically different because uh let's hear about you it. grew up on a yacht didn't you let's yeah hear about it. yeah and, he was uh, yachting for a living my father was so powerful he would shoot men while pheasant hunting and they would apologize to him the next day in the press um, are you watching squid games <laughs> i don't even know what squid games is don't uh, don't I, I can't uh, recommend it the, less. the cheney empire <laughs> um no I, I i'm from a middle-class family my my mom was was uh at the time in a, a school nurse and my pops was a narcotics agent in Connecticut. Wow. I made him very proud over the years. Sure. Wow. Uh, we, we, we explored the same field from different <laughs> uh, approaches. It was like I, the wire took place just in your house. It, wow. It, it, right. Like D so and excited McNulty. right now. <laughs> Except D and McNulty liked each other better, but like okay. that. Yeah. Um, but no, I actually got to college, and 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 people think I'm I'm exaggerating or being hyperbolic, or uh, I got to college and I did not know there were living writers. I thought everything had been written by the bunch of dead white guys we studied in high school, and that was it. That was plenty. Who could read all that? Yeah. Um, sure. And I thought actors on TV just talked to each other. They were very good at it. That's why they got paid. Mm -hmm. um, I never really, I, actually. I wouldn't have thought it through that far, actually. Um, but so, were you were were you not a reader when you were young? Were you you read because you had to, but not like? Uh, I remember I, which is okay. I don't remember reading much at all. I remember being very moved by Flowers for Algernon and the Incredible Shrinking Man, which oh, yeah. has an ending that I never want to read again because, as I recall it, it was the greatest sort of existential yet Buddhist at one with everything ending I've ever read. And I'm sure it, maybe it's that good, but I don't want to know because in my memory, it was the greatest ending I'd ever read. But, um, uh, but no, I, bands. I was in bands. Yeah. That's what I was. I was a classic suburban middle-class kid who thought that, that uh, a life's goal was to be a rock star and the fallback was to be an indie rock star. Um, uh, solid, yeah. solid score. I mean, goal. I'm not going to say that that wasn't the goal. But then that's I got great. To and we had to name a major, and I named musical theater because I'd been in a pit band, and I had no idea what I'd major in because I slept through or nodded through or you know was in the bathroom with hangovers during most of high school. So I, I named pit band because there was a band involved. Right. And then all of a sudden, I was singing at people my first semester of college in tight clothing and, and thinking wow. what the fuck just happened to my life. Yeah. You're talking to a musical theater pro right well, here. You're so talking to I him. am. Uh, and, and, and then. Slightly I, mortified right now but, because you actually got on stage and were actually doing it um, in tight clothes and not knowing what you were doing. Well, but so many others are like, 
Well, I just want that. I just no, want no, that. I, I mean, declared it my as first, my my first class was acting and movement at eight o'clock yes. in the morning, and I showed up. I had with that class. In a cigarette, and I'm wearing I'm wearing my clothes, and she's like, "Where are your Where are your clothes?" And I'm like, "These are my clothes." And she tells me I can't smoke or drink coffee. And I'm like, I am in the wrong damn major. I don't know where I belong. But anyway. <laughs> that's ridiculous because. Yeah, everyone can smoke. Everyone smokes and drinks coffee. Every, and usually every it's spiked in theater. Like, had, a, had a carton in her mouth. What school did you go to? This is I've, Emerson, this is absurd. Emerson. Emerson. But no, so I, I didn't know there were really writers till I was catering a writing where Bill Knott and Richard Yates were reading. Bill Knott, the, the wonderful poet, and Richard Yates. The, the oh, you were writer. catering? I was catering it. And that was also when I first learned that you could eat broccoli without it being brown and mooky. Um, like I, I, I beg to disagree. <laughs> but I was waiting for him to say covered in Velveeta books. cheese. We didn't have books or vegetables in my house. So <laughs> where did you so grow up? Catering crudite at a reading was just like going to the moon, and I loved it. So, so did you get hired by a catering company? You were a server. Yeah, yeah. No, I didn't have a business. I'm not an entrepreneur. Right, no. And this was in college. So you were catering in college. You went to a reading, serving I, broccoli, and you were like, oh, I could be a writer. I've got things I, to I, say. I, don't know. I thought, my God, it's amazing. People who are alive do shit this amazing, and it changed my life. I love and, that. And I learned you could eat broccoli. I mean, yeah. it, was, it, was, it was a 180. It, it was, was a certain, certainly a turning point. No, it truly I'm, was. I mean, not to make light of it, like re hearing Bill not Richard Yates was one of my favorite writers of all time. And at the time, probably I had just discovered there were writers and then I found out he was reading and then I saw him and it was just like, I mean, it was a sea change to a degree that I really can't even probably articulate, you know, trying to be more serious about it. It, it, it was, it was like the first time I, I, you know, heard the clash. It was like, Oh my God, there's a world I did not know existed. And I want to be part of that world. You know, the, there are, right. you know, those moments in art where that happens. Yeah. Yeah. And I just didn't even know there was a place. And then all of a sudden there was the possibility of an enormous place and, and, and it was all new and it was, it was wonderful. Did you go and change your major the next day or like what, what, what was the next right step around, towards right that? Right around then probably. I mean, I, I had, Gina's heard this too many times, so I'll, I'll do it really quickly, but I, I had a crush on this one woman who was, was in music theater and she transferred to tech theater. And I thought, well, the better, the better she, what? You just went on over too. <laughs> you followed her. I was trying to do this quickly. So, yeah. so you followed her. Uh, I just thought that the, the, the longer she was exposed to me, the more she would realize what a sensitive, wonderful person I was. And we would ultimately end up together and have little artistic children, I guess. No, I never wanted children. But anyway, not to go down that road, but, uh, I followed her through like four majors till I got to journalism. And I thought, I kind of like writing. Um, and, but I made stuff up and the editor at the, at the paper said, you know, you're not allowed to make stuff up. We, we're gonna put you on op-eds because you're very opinionated, but you don't try do transcriptions. Um, and I love that. And I love that. And that was great training for a writer because you think you're being funny and then people pick at you and you think you're being like cutting edge Woodward and Bernstein and they go, ah, oh, that was really cute. And you realize you, you have less control over an audience than you thought you did. And then I hit fiction and I had fallen in love with it. That's awesome. So when you left school and you want to be a fiction writer, where did that take you? Like, what were you working? Where, well, what were you doing? 500 feet of <laughs> Sure. <laughs> Jesus sure. Christ. 
Yeah. And she moved on to her fifth and final. Uh, it's not true. Major. That's actually a real person, and that's not it's true. Not true. <laughs> no, let me but let, let me it's tell you. Papa's a restraining order from 1986. No, no I'm sorry. I'm sorry. No, I'm... you're fine. I actually knew a boy that did the same thing. He and I were in theater together, and he, I think his name was actually Rob, um, but this oh. is in Michigan. <laughs> No, his, and we were we were in uh, we had our first um, what was the class what's the class you have to take after one hundred and one where you build sets okay so one hundred and two <laughs> is like you have to build mock sets okay and anyways he fell in love with an upperclassman who was in theater too and he did the same thing he followed her well, let me tell you what happened with them they got married and I was like ew gross because you're from Michigan because I'm from Michigan and I was like ew gross and I got in a car and drove all the way to California because I was like. Why did what? And then their careers were over. They became like, you know, one Parents. became like an elementary school teacher and the other one stayed home and had five kids. I was like, what is this? This is terrible. That's not what this was about. I shouldn't say that because I'm going to alienate a lot of people. But for me, that was terrible. That's not the dream when you go, I want to be an actor. I want to be a writer. I want to be a journalist. You go do and be those things. You don't just pretend it in college and then do something else completely. Well, that's what I thought. I just didn't know they existed. So oh, in that yeah. regard, college was a real uh, gift for me. But then you still, it, Rob's had like, you know, 97 jobs. Yeah, let's talk like, about it. Like he drove a Zamboni for a day. Like, I mean. No, no, no. <laughs> Zamboni is actually like Kleenex. It's a brand name. I drove a ice cleaning machine that was not in fact a Zamboni machine, but did the same effect as a Zamboni machine. But was it as effective as a Zamboni? I think that company would like you to believe it was every bit as effective, if not an improvement on the Zamboni technology. Then how and come I, you only lasted one day on the job? Well, like every good machine, it depends who's lost, using it. The Buffalo Parks Department lost the contract to the Zamboni company. <laughs> <laughs> All right, well, let's talk about some of your 97 jobs because I, Jason always thinks it's funny that I've had like 97 jobs. It's, ad, it's actually not, not to, I'm sorry, it really is. I, I believe I came out between 48 and 51. Yeah, I believe so, it. Yeah. I mean, that, there is an actual count somewhere in there. Yeah. 48 and 51 jobs. Something like that. A lot of physical labor and a lot of restaurant industry. And a near equal amount of roommates. We both have done a lot of service industry work. And, um, but Rob also like painted houses. Oh, and God. I did that too. Yeah. Which it, it's really funny. Whenever you do a bio for a book or a, a publication, like my first publication after seven years of, of, of reject, I don't know why I kept doing it. I guess that was when I realized I was a writer. Um, <laughs> but uh, no, I, when I realized I was a writer, was I wrote a three-page short story like six months after I graduated from having an MFA. And I thought, why the hell did I do that? There's not a professor who wants that. There's no one on earth who is interested in what I have just done, it must be what I do because there's no reason to be doing this. And that was a sort of epiphanal moment, but- Involuntary um, writing? Yeah, it's like, well, I guess I, guess I do do this, you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah. We'll be right back. Tell us some of your service uh, industry jobs. I picture oh, Gina and Rob on a date going, oh, really? I can top that. I did well, this. And this person said this. We're both far more invested in what interests us, like most human beings, except we're pretty open about it, over what might interest someone else for, for their money. Um, so I don't know. Most of my gigs, though, were just great for fiction. And I think, you know, on a, on a craft side, 
most people don't write enough about jobs as far as I'm concerned. And for a lot of my life, it was over, well over a third of the hours that I put in on, on in, in Earth. It was the source of probably a good 80% of my resentments. Um, it fueled much of my behavior fueled in resentment into, you know, drug fueled escapades to escape from the crummy life I was going back to at eight o'clock the next morning. So, I mean, I think it, it, it's very, it, it shaped a psyche, not just an aesthetic of life, but of a as a writer, I got to know a lot of people. I mean, I've gotten to work on a garbage truck, you know, where the guy before me backed it in wrong. And it's like a tube of toothpaste at the compactors at the restaurants and the uh, supermarkets where when you squeeze all the fish and the goo out and into the <laughs> compactor, if it's bent wrong, it's like a hole in a tube of toothpaste. Oh, yeah. Someone like me works for a mobster and has to go shovel maggot fish heads into a bucket. I was just bring up the maggots. I was going to say, like, oh, talk about maggots. I, so I shoveled maggot oh. food waste yeah. for a summer. And then the guy I rode the truck with in the mornings, not every day, and I made him have to get me a coffee eventually, but he would stop and he would fuck his niece in the basement of the house on, on the way to work. He would stop oh, at 6.30 and say, I'll, I'll be right back. And it turned out he was fucking his, maybe his cousin. Maybe it was nicer than that. Uh, I'll say cousin. Cousin. It, it can be consensually disturbing. Um, but he eventually, I made While him. sitting in the car. I eventually made him at least get me a coffee while we right. waited. And I mean, then, that's fair compensation. And then the maggots yeah. lay ahead on the day. That was one gig, you know, there were a lot. But I was an industrial painter, and the thing about bios in, in publishing, like the first publication I had, the guy says, okay, well, tell me about yourself. And I said, well, I, I just got an MFA in writing from Vermont College. He's like, oh, that's interesting. I'm not, we're not going to use that. I'm <laughs> like, um, well, you know, I'm, I'm really interested in narrative theory. I study narrative theory. I dropped out of a PhD program, but I was studying modernism and narrative theory. He's like, oh, that's fascinating. That's like, and he's like, well, you know, what have you done for a living? I said, well, to pay for grad school, I was an industrial painter. He's yeah. like, what was that? Yeah. Right. Well, I painted airline hangers and you use magnetic oh. paint because paint that falls onto ocean machines destroys the robotics. So you have to use magnetic paint. So it sucks up to the roof and all this. And he's like, oh, okay. So my first publication is Robert Barish lives in Buffalo, New York. He's an industrial painter. Wow. This is part of, I want to like, I want to asterisk. This is part of like every male, every male writer in America. <laughs> but it's not our he, fault. <laughs> he has been, uh, he, he has been, uh, you know, on a shipping boat in Alaska as a fisherman. Like this is literally like the bio ago. of every freaking male writer in this country. Like For females, they don't want to know that. They're like, no. I, I was going to ask you, Gina, like, did, did, do they ever express any interest in what you've done other than writing when writing your bios? Um, you know, no, no. no. Um, to the point no, of suppression? or I just ask you in every single, like, reading or interview you ever do, like, what your children will think of the fact that you write about <laughs> sex. So, I mean, that, you know, like that's, women get that and men get the shipping in Alaska. You should just start um, saying you so, worked on the shipping. fishing, fishing in Alaska. I'm you like, were a king crab fishing. I don't understand. But then they're going to make her write about that. They're going to make her write about her love romance or some affair that she had when she was a fisherman <laughs> in Alaska. I was a fisherman in Alaska, but no, I mean, I, um, you know, I've written a little bit about some, I mean, I, I worked as a maid in London. Um, 
and I, it was at a hotel and I had to carry like a 9,000 pound Hoover vac up and down these like narrow, crazy stairs. Cause it was one of those, I lived in the attic <laughs> and, um, and so it was literally like in this unair conditioned attic during a heat wave in Jesus. London and in so London, it was what, like 30 degrees? in London, when it's 90 degrees, half the city dies. Cause like right. they don't understand heat. heat. No one has air yeah. conditioning. So it's like, I'm in this, the, I'm a, uh, like the scullery maid in the attic carrying the Hoover, but people, you know, it was interesting. So my dad was a bartender um, and my mom was a secretary. So obviously like, you know, it wasn't sort of like, oh, I was slumming working blue collar jobs. It was just no. normal for me. But, um, but it, it, it was eye-opening, like being a maid at a hotel, you see how little regard, like my father's customers, I've been a bartender too, at, at two different places in London and here. Um, and, and people, you know, they, they hit on you a lot, but, uh, but they're not um, generally inhumane to you. Although my, my cousin has been like robbed while being a bartender. But, um, but when you're a maid, it's like, for some reason, they're, is fecal matter like as if this the exorcist existed yes. in, in the room like yes and just the disregard for who is going to be in there cleaning up after you like yes. was so above and beyond service industry because it's mm -hmm. anonymous yeah. And, you know, they don't have to interact with you. They don't have to give you their order. They don't have to sit at the stool and face you after they've, you know, apparently like thrown a piece of shit in their drink or whatever. We, I mean, that's the equivalent of, of when you're working as a maid. So, and then I, you know, I wasn't in the greatest health and I had kind of an eating disorder and I was really small and, and I eventually couldn't stand the hoisting of the hoover and you know i i had to cook breakfast too and i had like burnt all the hair off my arm in like the crazy oh oven where i would put the bacon and then i had to work the reception so it was like i was was multitasking this crazy job and finally i got Is this black adder I know, right? And, and, and I got a job at a pub instead. And I was like, this is going to be better. Um, and so I, I quit, but I was like, you know, hoping of course that I was going to get my last paycheck <laughs> and my, my boss was like, no. And I was like, but but I worked those right. weeks. And she was like, well, you don't mean anything to me. Yeah. And wow. it was just like, Oh my God. You know, so, so was it, it was, it was, you know, definitely like that particular job, you know, it was like, I thought I, I, and I nannied a ton. So sometimes there was a lot of disregard there, but it was like the, when people don't have to face you, it was yeah. sort of like my precursor to awareness of what the internet would be like. It's mm -hmm. like people do not have to face you. They will do just disgusting things you know yeah. um because you're just sort of you're the anonymous mate and they don't care they don't have any shame for their like discarded condoms on the ground yeah. or like what what kind of marks are in their bed and it's just it's just really gross so so I did that I did a lot of nannying work a lot of um summer girl work um you know and 
mainly really service industry and, and that kind of work before I went into the helping professions. And then since then, I've, you know, I've been in the gig economy my whole life, really. Yeah. I mean, I've, I've never, I had a full-time salaried position for three years as a visiting lecturer at UIC right after my divorce. Um, and so like it from 16 to 19, 2016 to 2019. But other than that, like I've never had a job that offered insurance. I've never had a job where I was paid a flat out salary rather than a buy the class or buy the hour or whatever. Like, so, um, so in that sense, I mean, I'm 53, but it's like, I'm still, you know, in the hustle. I'm still in the hustle. Can I ask, five books and let so me far. ask you a personal question about that, because I know you had breast cancer mm -hmm. and you were divorced and you were gig economy and cobbling together, you know, the pieces of a professional life. I mean, these are positions with that are held in high esteem. There is competition up the wazoo. So if you leave, it's like, well, we've got 6,100 okay. other applicants. So you're hanging on to that. So where were you getting your benefits? Were you paying? So initially, um, you know, I was still eligible for 18 months of COBRA and it. it was wildly expensive, but, yeah. I, but I was on it. And then pretty much the reason that this get, you know, that the, the visiting lectureship at UIC saved my, my life in many ways was that like, it allowed me to then have three years of, of secure insurance um, because obviously Cobra would run out nor could I really afford it in terms of like yeah. the cash and so forth. It's but, like um, over a grand for like a single it, person. It, it was really expensive. Um, and so, so yeah, so that's why, why I took that job. And so, you know, as a visiting lecturer, I was, I mean, I, I had been an editor for at that point already 20 years plus. Wow. And yeah. I've been teaching, I taught in MFA programs, you know, a, a number. You of also them. taught at UC Riverside for I've a while. Been, yes, I've, I've been teaching all over the place for 20 years. But at that position, I was pretty much only teaching comp, like first year writing. I, I sometimes was given something like technical writing or, you know, just other, other non-creative writing, non-lit classes, um, because that's what they needed. And so it was not in any way like my my dream job but it was my dream job it was like they insured me they gave me a salary let me ask you this because i have a lot of people who have graduated programs who are writers who are like maybe i could be a technical writer and i'm like like white papers do you know how to do that like that is like a, and you're teaching it like you have to go learn that to teach that class like that is a specific skill that's not writing that is no that is it, it, it's wild, actually. So they hired me to teach technical writing. I was hired in August because my divorce had already just gone through. And I started like, I mean, I think like later that, that month. Um, sure. And so I had zero time to learn how to do technical writing. I, Jesus. I, I did not excel at it, Jamie. Um, no, I mean, listen, and, you're a wonderful but, teacher, but so it doesn't tasked, matter. I was tasked with, um, for no additional pay, and this is just the reality of, of academia, I was tasked with 
no additional pay. reading a bunch of books on biology and, and the sciences to draft a syllabus to pitch to the science departments about how technical writing through the English department should be a required class for the, and, and, uh, the I'm in charge of, of this, right? And it's like, I don't know what I'm doing, but nobody else has time to do it. And probably in all honesty, not many people in the English department know how to do it. No, so, so this, this is, is like engineers, engineers get this job. Like people right. who like graduated with biology degrees get this job. Right. with no training right. but they have the knowledge to be able to do it so they they buy or, or look at other white papers and they copy the formatting and the the technical well, for me um you know i was given a fair amount of autonomy and so technical writing in my class um you know had a lot to do with things like copy editing writing ad copy right. writing th like things like that right. i mean it wasn't probably what um everyone would would teach for it just like yeah you know in an editing and publishing class some people will teach academic journals and other people will teach like how to run a indie press you know so it's like it was i i interpreted it in a way that would allow me not to just completely shit the bed <laughs> right, right. Right. I'm and so glad so. you used that phrase before I did. <laughs> the, the, the over under on that was going this way. So. Please join us next week for the continuation of our conversation with Gina Frangello and Rob Roberge. We fought on Thursday, made up on Friday, but now I'm losing ground. You call me lazy.
let's get back to the show. 